Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, y'all. Welcome to Punching Out. My name's Noah. I'm here with Lou. Hey, guys. We're recording this on July 4th, the day that Americans are supposed to shoot off fireworks and enjoy lovely grilled food and celebrate the fact that they live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And and just to clarify, it's not just all Americans. It's all people across the world who should love America as much as we love America. She can do that, folks. She's from Texas. Um, <laughs> yes, everyone else in the world is also supposed to concurrently celebrate July 4th because freedom. you are, yes, you are basking in the reflected freedom from the United States. Well, obviously, if you've ever listened to us before, you know that that's not what we're about on this show. We'd like to talk about the ways in which that popular image of the land of the free, the home of the brave, the the freedom and liberty, the milk and honey of the Eagles United wings. States. Uh, yeah, uh, Wall you know, Street, red, white, flag bedecked, electric guitars, and underwear. How that image leaves out the necessity of pulling of putting millions of people into a meat grinder of abuse and terror and literal violence in order for some small amount of people with a straight face that they really don't deserve being able to say that this is the freest country in the world. Right. Yeah. So freedom in the U.S. really just means the freedom to exploit other people. Um you know, if unless you're an upper class person or a, a capitalist in general, um, somebody who owns the capital and the means of production, you don't have actually a lot of true meaningful freedoms. You can't meaningfully choose where you work or where you live or how you get around or or anything like that. You are set to this work schedule set by that boss. You can only live in these certain places. And this freedom only exists for people who can afford to buy it. And moreover, the freedom that they're talking about is the freedom to make money however you want. And true choice is, is just six different flavors of toothpaste. So what you're saying is that the, the freedom we are offered in the United States is really just the freedom of like staring at the wall of peanut butter and not knowing which one is better than the other. Right. Like, there's no actual liberty right. in that. Yeah. Like the discourse around the 4th of July is always like, you know, troops, 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 just like it is in every other holiday. Every holiday is about the troops somehow. Some Christmas, way. Thanksgiving, it's Labor Day. It's about the troops. Don't forget to thank the troops. Yes. Um, you know, and then you hear a lot of this this discourse around student loan forgiveness and, and making free colleges. And they're like, well, you know, my choice, I had the freedom to choose to go to college for free. All I had to do was join the military and, you know, go kill brown people in another country, like, which is different from this country. Um, so Radically. Yeah, radically. Uh, so these choices and when you truly think about it, you, we are very limited in what we are free 
so to speak, to do without a lot of money behind you in order to buy those choices. And one of the probable reasons that that's what ends up happening is that they don't really, I, I mean, I don't know about you, Lou, you've said before, you apparently had a better education in U.S. history than I did, but I didn't get the sense when I was studying American history in school that labor organizing, that that working people struggling together, collectivizing for power, for rights, for the, just better life, for freedom, dare I say, mm-hmm. that that was an artifact of any time other than like the Gilded Age and the very early 20th century. And then we just solved it all in the New Deal era. And ever since then, there is no more need for right. anything like that. Yeah, like the only time we talk about um, labor relations in terms of American history education is in the New Deal, which is like, but it's even then, it's more talking about um, national works projects, like the the whatever. The triple C. Triple, and the, yeah, yeah, like things Tennessee like that. Tennessee Valley Authority. Um, in terms of how the government sort of kind of unconstitutionally um, create a whole bunch of uh, opportunities for working people to earn wages beyond the normal private corporations. And even that's kind of framed in terms of, well, this was very controversial and might have been illegal, and and we definitely don't do that now. Um, we don't you know, need to do that now. We don't There's need no need to. for that. We yeah. are at the best time It's like 3.6% unemployment rate right now, which anybody who is alive right now and not making a million dollars a year knows that's a load of crap in terms of meaningfulness and, and meaningfulness and wages. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't really exist. So, you know, in terms of labor education, there basically is none. Right. So we'd like to actually take this first segment to disabuse you of the notion <laughs> that working people only started organizing themselves in the late 1800s. Now, again, if you're listening to us, there's a pretty good chance you knew about that already. So we're specifically going Preach to Preach into the choir. Yeah, Colston Newcastle. <coughs> we are very specifically going to be using the lens of, well, labor events that happen in July, and we are indebted, among others, we're indebted to historian Eric Loomis uh, for his work. He's been keeping a sort of series of This Day in Labor History posts, and we've called a little bit from that as well as from other sources. But we're going to start with July 2nd, 1822. That was the day that a man named Denmark Vesey, an African-American man uh, living in Charleston, South Carolina, a free African-American man, was executed for his role in leading something called The Rising. Lou, what was The Rising supposed to be? So it was supposed to be allegedly uh, basically a slave revolt in Charleston. The gentleman in question... Den- Denmark Vesey. Denmark Vesey. He was a, a, a freed black man living in Charleston, South Carolina. He started a church um, at his church. Uh, he did a lot of preachings, a lot of sermons on the freedom of all peoples, um, which was controversial in Charleston given that there were a lot of enslaved people. So and that Charleston at the time was a majority black city, something right. like fourteen thousand black people to ten thousand white people. Right. So, so you know, given that this is the early nineteenth century, um, Haiti is already 
been declared free or declared itself free uh, from France, it still made white slave owners very nervous because Haiti was a successful slave revolt um, that got rid of a lot of white slave owners, unsurprisingly. Mm -hmm. So the fact that that, uh, this gentleman was preaching to other black people about freedom and and not just freedom, but the righteousness of overcoming your oppressor of white slave owners shouldn't just be no longer slave owners. They should probably have some kind of reparation. They should up die. to dying. Yeah. yeah. Up to dying. Um, you know, this is what he was preaching, which, you know, even now would be considered really radical, especially given how many centrist people are out there like, Oh, well, I'm sure they meant well, slave owners. Anyways. Um, so he allegedly started this plot to, free a whole bunch of slaves, get free, burn Charleston to the ground, and then escape to Haiti. Yep. Somebody snitched. A couple people people snitched. snitched. Yeah, a couple people snitched to their owners, which sucks. And uh, Varhese was captured and executed. Yep. Uh, 130 people plus Vasey were arrested. 67 of them were convicted. 35 of them were hanged. And apparently... They never gave up who the rest of their followers were despite torture. And it's notable that then a number of them, including Vasey's son, were sold to the Caribbean. So uh, you you have to imagine that there was a sort of cruel irony there. You, you'll get to escape to a place much like Haiti, but it won't be escape right. voluntarily. And right. it won't be what you think it's going right. to be. Because slavery in the Caribbean meant sugar plantations, which was one of the most deadly occupations for lack of a better word that that existed and kind of exists today yep um so you know anybody who survived basically was sold into even worse situations they burned Varhese's church to the ground and then started enacting really strict laws about who could be freed when because Varhese was a slave he won a lottery bought himself freedom and you know, in the aftermath of this, they basically shut down any ability for um, enslaved blacks to get free. Yep. They also built what you might know these days as the Citadel. The first version of that was built explicitly because of the Vasey plan. And well, yeah, they destroyed that uh, that AME church building. There are apparently two churches in Charleston that sort of in apostolic tradition, follow on Vasey's church. And one of them, unfortunately, is the church uh, where the shooting in Charleston happened uh, four years ago now. Yeah. So we were just talking about the image of freedom. And the literal opposite of that is slavery. Somebody like Denmark Vasey got access to some freedoms because he won a lottery. Was he able to buy his wife's freedom? No. Was he able to buy all of his children out of slavery? No. He shouldn't have had to, of course. That That's a given. But the fact is that in the conditions of the antebellum South in the United States, a country that was already fire-breathing about how much liberty, how free its its citizens were, how much a beacon of light it was to the rest of the world, there were still 
hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people within its borders who could not be said to be free in any sense of the word. And Denmark Vesey preached freedom for a small number of them, and his reward was a noose. So from the very beginning, working people in this country have fought for their freedom. From the very beginning, the response to them has been total denial and violence. And there's a lot of discussion in Marxist capital about can slavery and and if you are an enslaved person, can you be considered a worker and everything like that? And you know, obviously you can, because fundamentally somebody else is exploiting you. It's just the most raw, unadulterated version of being exploited is is not even having the illusion of choice in your life. You know, you you can't choose to even leave the property let alone, you know, choose where you're going to sleep at night, which I know is a bit stretched, but it's, you know, this illusion of choice only exists if you can afford it. Right. And to be fair, I do think that one of the tenets of capital is that the supposedly free worker is what enables all the abuses that are specific to the industrial age. Exactly. It's just, it's even more stark when you're not even in any sense whatsoever free. Right. But this is what our country is built on. This is the labor relations that exist um, from our beginning. Yeah, that that is for sure. It's not, not to hammer it home twice within like three minutes, but there's definitely a theme that you'll see running through this episode where the powers that be in the U.S., and I mean the real powers that be, not – you know, the supposed secret elements within the government that are advocating <laughs> that we form a union with Canada and Mexico. Whatever happened to those people, by the way, did they just, once Ron Paul left, they just were done? Because I haven't heard anything about the NAU for a while or the Amero. But um, I'm talking about the actual powers that be, the people who sit on their butts, sorry, um, in their <laughs> offices and collect money from the people that they are constantly exploiting. They're the only ones in this country who can say that they have any real, that they are free in any real sense of the word. They're certainly not brave. But once again, it's important to note that even as the American experiment, there's one of those great words that we like to use, or the American project, was leaving thousands of people out of its supposedly broad umbrella. Those people didn't take that line down, which is important to know. So we're going to go just one day forward in history and, well, one day, 13 years and one day forward in history. <laughs> we're going to talk about the P- Patterson textile strike of 1835. You will never hear me say that there was an American an American system of labor that was worse than chattel slavery because there wasn't. And anybody who tells you different is sharing a Facebook meme. <laughs> but... Uh, But the rise of industrialization did allow, especially in the North, capital to act as close as it was ever going to get to the Southern planter elite without admitting that it was exactly like them. Yeah. And talking about the people who were employed in the textile mills in Patterson, New Jersey, we're talking about literal children. We're, We're not talking about, from what I understand, we're not talking about like, 
teenagers on the cusp of what we now consider legal adulthood. We were talking about literal children. This is a century before child labor laws come into any kind of vogue. This is long before things like the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. These are kids working 13 and a half hour days. And spare me the whole like, well, that's what they all did back then. Again, they shouldn't have had to. Part of the theme of this is that we cannot sit here and talk about how these are values that we have now that are supposed to be immutable and then excuse them the moment that they don't comport with the history that we've constructed in our minds of this country. So maybe it's worth very, very briefly talking about the labor conditions in a place like Patterson or Lowell, Massachusetts or uh, Pawtucket, Rhode Island are also famous kind of textile towns that enable labor to organize more effectively in the industrial age. Right. So labor relations don't really get underswing until capitalism fully manifests itself in the industrial age. So with the rise of factories and with the, the rise of, of individual humans owning um, the capital and the, the means of production that, and using labor as the way to produce goods and, and things and make profit and blah, 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 blah. Um, <laughs> this is how you get people becoming exploited and organized enough because they're urbanized, because they're they're close together. They start suffering and say, hey, I know you, you're a neighbor of mine, let's, let's you know, maybe stop this. Not quite so glib as that. But it's because of industrialization, which happened in the U.S. in the northern states first, that you get the formation of unions and labor strikes and, and in general, modern labor relations such that they are. Right. The geographical concentration of people, both really outside and inside of work. Right. Like there's, I mean, such that you're outside of work. If you're working 13 hour days, like that's not a lot of time for the outside world, you know, 13 hour days up to six or seven days a week. Like that's not good. A while back I was reading about uh, this, very tangential, but a while back I was reading about how in the late 19th century in the, or sorry, early 20th century in the sugar mills in Puerto Rico, it was common to have a reader, somebody who would actually literally just read books, newspapers, whatever to the workers. And that's how you ended up with a lot of people who the capital class was very impressed when a lot of these labor organizers who had worked all their lives in what they consider to be menial jobs, uh, you know, were highly educated. And it was because they had these people reading to them this whole time. So it didn't matter that, you know, they couldn't go to a library and take out a book because they right. were working ridiculous hour days and getting paid like crap for it. Right. Um, there was actually somebody within the building doing that. Yeah, it's like the Robin William jokes about how Tiger Woods learned to play golf. You know, the country club owners were very confused. Like, how did he learn to play? We didn't let him in. Yeah, exactly. So for sure. So what happened here was um, over 20 mills, 2,000 workers walked off the job on July 3rd, and I think this is important because this is gonna, this is sort of going to be a theme. Donations. So not only did workers donate, um, but they formed a relief organization. And I find this very interesting because again, we tend to think of this phrase as something that only really came to exist later, but. Apparently, it was called the Patterson Association for the Protection of the Working Class. And workers in Newark uh, created a committee to look into the cotton mills and described it. And once again, this is a quote 
from an article by historian Eric Loomis, in case we haven't made that clear yet. Um, they describe conditions as more congenial to the climate of the autocrat of all the Russias than to this land of the free and home of the brave. So even in 1835, people were doing the exact same thing we did at the beginning of this episode. But but we're so free. We're so, so very free right now, guys. They meant they were cold, right? More more congenial to the climate of the autocrat of all the Russias? I have no idea what that means. I don't know what it means. It's very confusing. <laughs> I just know it's bad, but I don't know what it means. You just generally get the the... Big yes. picture of it. It's So another thing that hasn't changed, people won't shut up over Russia. Anyway, <laughs> so employers, um, unfortunately, the success of the strike was limited. Employers did bust the strike. People who led the strike, which were young girls for the most part, were forced to move away so they could find work again because they got blacklisted. And in general, people went back to work uh, within a month or so right. or a month and a half. So they were working 13-hour days. They demanded 11. They got 12. And nine on Saturday. Nine on Saturdays. You nine on Saturday. Nine, nine hours on a Saturday. A 69-hour work week. Not nice. <laughs> um, so on the one hand, it on the one hand, it was only a 12-hour improvement. On the other hand, it was a 12-hour improvement. Right. It was an actual early example from long before the Gilded Age from long before the railroad strikes and, you know, all of the other violent crap that we're going to talk about. Yeah, I was going to say, enough. like, nobody died in this one. Yeah, surprisingly. So, like, this is a pretty, and it was one successful, two, nobody died. So, as far as labor relations of the 19th century, this one's not very typical. This is not a, a yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe we're example. Maybe we're doing you a disservice by starting you off with, with something or by ending the segment on something that's very atypical for American labor relations. So we'll fix I, it. Yeah, no worries. Just we are going to come back and talk about some other ones, but just be sure you think things are going to go more phasey than they're going to go Patterson. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm still Noah, and I'm still joined by Lou. Hi, guys. So when we left you last segment, we told we talked about the Patterson Textile Strike of 1835, and we said, you know, it was relatively tame and non-violent nobody died it was sort of successful it was weird yeah that's not how things normally go yeah so if you want a picture of the archetypical strike in american labor history allow us to introduce you to the great railroad strike of 1877 on july 14th that's right they dishonored bastille day <laughs> um Lou, would you like to give us some backstory on 1877? So, 1877, the world sucks. If you live in the U.S., it's in reconstruction or very near the end of it. Oh, it's in the end of it. Rutherford Hayes is, is present. Yeah. We're done. So, so we're like done with reconstruction. The world is fixed. Everything's better. Railroads are huge. In fact, they're so huge that they can do basically whatever the hell they want to whomever the hell they want to. So... 
Farmers don't like railroads because they're being forced to pay way over price because railroad owners go to other corporations, other capitalists, and be like, hey, I'll like cut you a deal. You don't have to spend that much. So they overcharge the farm workers. Workers, on the other hand, are incensed because not only are they you know, a worker in the late 19th century, which just would be the worst anyway, they're being forced to, to do longer and longer hauls. So their, their routes that they're taking are longer and longer as the railroads expand west. Um, they are not given additional staff or additional workers to you know, make this possible. And on top of that, the railroad companies start cutting wages, which is absurd. How do you not strike? So this strike ends up being one of the largest in U.S. history. Uh, over 100,000 workers end up striking at one point. Uh, multiple rail companies are involved. No, how many? Um, I think, well, the, the final spark was the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad cutting wages for the third time in a year. Which, like, that's like, you know, you're working at uh, current moder- uh, 2019 version of railroad worker. You work at fast food. Okay, fast food industry cut your wages three times in a year. Like, that's pretty easy to understand why that would make you very, very upset. Well, and the thing is now, of course, they have, <laughs> supposedly, they have a wage floor that they can't cut below. They, they'll they figure right. out ways to get below that. But Right, which didn't exist then because there yeah. was no minimum wage. So there's even worse. But So not only are your wages being cut, which would make anybody mad, you're being asked to do a lot more work. So it's like trying to do twice as much work on a third of the pay. And it was basically, it's the railroad companies basically daring their workers to strike. And in the first real mass action of American labor, that is what they did. It's worth noting that some of the workers that we're talking about striking weren't even railroad workers. There were places where even if you didn't work for the railroad, you hated the railroad. Either because they made your livelihood more difficult to come by or because they killed someone close to you or even not close to you. It might have just been somebody that you barely knew. But that kind of um, hubris tends to lead to hatred. Uh, I think wrestling fans would say that railroad (laughs) companies drew a lot of heat. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, to be a railroad company owner or even – upper or middle management meant to be one of the most disgusting people in all of labor history. Correct. Uh, you know, that's the stereotype of th- the robber, baron. the robber baron. Like that's exactly who these people were is, is not only were they, you know, fouling up cities, they were killing people. They were making you work too hard. They were overcharging you. If you were just a regular old schmo versus one of their buddies, like, just out and out corruption, Cruelty, inhumanity, etc. Exactly. And if you're wondering, no, it wasn't successful. And yes, it involved plenty of violence. And if you think that Lou was just overselling this idea that owners and bosses and, and managers of railroad companies were not some of the most disgusting people on earth, I have a quote for you from the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad at the time, one Thomas Alexander Scott. Strikers should receive a rifle diet for a few days and see how they like that kind of bread. 
Neat. Thanks, dude. And so, you know, as always, it's been fine to order bullets for other people as long as you have money in right. this country. And and just to go back to the overarching feeling of freedom, even to this day, this argument would be framed in that the robber barons, the railroad owners, the capitalists, your landlord now, Jeff Bezos, are fully within their right to do this. Mm-hmm. This is what freedom is. They are free to do whatever they want, and the rest of us just have to shut up. Yep. Uh, another thing that we're not going to cover on this episode, but which also happened in July, um, was the homestead strike. We talked about it on our episode about the Pinkertons. And we also talked about how in a very recent strike, uh, the Pinkertons stand accused of, among other things, um, allegedly cutting lines with an axe as a false flag operation. So where I'm going with this is that things have not changed in this regard nope. at all. Not in a little bit. Violence is still your right if you have money. Those two things go together. Yeah. So speaking of, I just want to, I really want to say this next thing that I want to talk about is probably my favorite thing we're going to talk about it and that it makes me the most angry. What is this thing, Lou? This is the, what's it called in Arizona? Uh, the, the, the Bisbee, the portation. The Bisbee. I can't remember what things are called. So we are going to go a full 40 years forward in time. Uh, July 12th, 1917. By this point, just to give you a little bit of background, the... So a number of the more famous strikes have happened by this point, the Pullman strike, Homestead. Uh, there have been minor strikes uh, in other areas. We've talked about a few of them on this show before. And by now, the Western Federation of Miners and a number of other organizations have formed the International Workers of the World, which are notably distinct from other unions in that they don't seek to organize uh, miners or railroad workers or anybody or longshoremen or whatever. Specifically, they seek to organize workers as a whole. It's literally one big union. That's the whole point. And this is going to be, unfortunately, not a great day for them. So what is what what is the deportation? So uh, the Bisbee de- uh, deportations happened in in Bisbee, Arizona. This was a mining town, specifically copper mining, although basically they're all the same. They had terrible working conditions. Things were terrible, blah, blah, blah. Um, They decide to organize. Quick question. Who were the miners? They were primarily immigrants. So a lot of them were Americans, um, but a not small percentage of them were either Mexican or Eastern European. So not only did this, you know, were they workers, they were also foreigners. And this is happening at the same time as the U.S. is starting to enter World War I, um, which is the um, Espionage Acts. And any kind of dissent in World War I uh, resulted in a lot of backlash from the U.S. government. So... People are are wary of foreigners. Moreover, it's a strike. Things are not going to go well. So the workers in question organize, decide to to go on strike, and the owners of the mine didn't react well, (laughs) to, to put it mildly. So they shut down the Western Union telegraph station so that word wouldn't spread of what they were doing. 
they go through the town of Bisbee and they round up anybody who they were supposed to round up only people who were striking. So people that were at the union, people who worked for the mines, people who were striking, which is bad enough, <laughs> which is bad enough. They, you know, having extrajudicial force going through and just rounding them up. That's, that's terrifying. But they didn't just grab miners. They grabbed basically anybody, especially if you were foreign-y looking. So yes. just, yeah. If they thought you were Mexican or Eastern European. Yeah, if you were Mexican or Eastern European, you got, you got grabbed. Not like this. They marched them to waiting trains where they were pushed into cattle cars knee-deep in manure. This is Interesting image. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. does that sound any familiar? So they were put on these these uh, cattle cars. Uh, accounts differ on whether or not they were given food and water. They were sent out to New Mexico and just left in the desert. Yep. They So that is how they busted that strike, is they rounded up a whole bunch of people, put them on a train, kidnapped them, and left them in the desert for dead, which is horrifying not just because it has a lot of echoes of current situations in the Southwest right now in the U.S. It's particularly odious because in both of these cases in 1877 and 1917, these cases are 40 years apart. And in both cases, the federal government did not a damn thing for the people striking. In 1877, to be fair, the miners in Bisbee got lucky in one regard because what Rutherford and Hayes, the biggest sellout in American presidential history, actually there's probably a few competitors for that one, but uh, the man stole an election by promising to end Reconstruction and then in the railroad strike literally sent in the military to strike break. So that that's where we were in 1877. In 1917, Woodrow Wilson essentially asked – the Phelps Dodge Company, which is the mining company that pulled this off, um, could you maybe explain why you thought this was a good idea? And the mining company said, we don't have to listen to you. And yeah. that was the end of that. Yeah, and it, like I said, because it was World War One too, the Wobblies, as part of their you know organization, they, they didn't have a strong stance one way or the other on World War One. They told all the people that were unionizing with them, make up your own mind. So there was no incentive whatsoever for the U.S. government to support these people in any ways because they were probably just dirty foreigners who were going to mess up their war efforts. Yeah. And, of course, this is the era of the first Red Scare. There's discrimination against German-Americans and um, just the Palmer raids also happened during this time. And the time during which the U.S. is entering World War One is like a particularly – horrible age for the the way the US treated its its own citizens and also for people to just follow orders for a while because if you look at any of this stuff if you look at the histories of the Palmer raids if you look at any of these union actions if you look at what happened to people like Frank Little who were who was I believe he was dragged behind a truck until his kneecaps were scraped off. Yeah, he he was straight up lynched. Yep. If you look at these histories, nothing happened to any of these people. There were probably Pinkerton agents just you know getting drinks bought for them by rich people in bars for the next forty years off the strength of stories like that. And 
the unfortunate truth of American history is that the glittering, you know, parties of the Gilded Age and the Roaring Twenties, all of the ostentatiousness that that we celebrate in art and in culture was enabled by, again, a massive, like truly massive amount of exploitation that was always backed by the bullet. And it was always at the barrel of a gun that the capitalists defended their interests from the people that they had abused in the first place badly enough to demand better conditions for themselves. Because, by the way, this wasn't even the only deportation event. It's just I think the other one doesn't land in July, (laughs) I want to say. So we technically can't put it in this episode. But this was classic. I mean, the federal government legitimately actually did the thing that people constantly claim that it does now. It asked for an explanation uh, from the governor who then turned around and uh, dropped the hot potato on the local sheriff who apparently – basically replied, it became a question of, are you American or are you not? So that was that was where this cop stood on it. It was to be American was to accept being exploited at the hands of the baronial class, no matter how much your rights were being abrogated. And we should note, because we haven't actually talked about the historical side of this, the strike obviously was busted after this happened. That tends to happen when you disappear everyone involved in it and leave them in the desert. Um, the It crushed the unions that were involved in it. And really, this is, we are coming to the end of the Wobblies as a real power in any of this. And this is where I want to, again, sort of harken back to my school days. I remember distinctly reading a play where one character is at pains to deny that he is a wobbly. I can't remember what play it was. I can't remember the author. I'm not just not naming it to be mysterious. (laughs) But they include an asterisk talking about how the international workers of the world, commonly known as the wobblies, were one of the more radical unions, blah, 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 involved in the late Gilded Age and stuff. And many members of it were accused of terrorism and of other activities that, and it just sort of goes on to paint them as these absolutely, you know, a powder keg of a union. Right, right. Just to recap, in case you were tuning in now, the Wobblies didn't terrorize people. They didn't kidnap thousands of people and drop them in the desert. They didn't lynch, you know, capitalists. They, they didn't have an organized military that could kill, I think I did some pretty quick math, like 300 people across the country for the temerity to strike. Yeah, so that is just false. That's the the propaganda we've sold, and that's what people believe to this day because of stuff like that. And also I think because in a way it kind of confirms what we hear and have shaped around us every day. There's the unfortunate truth that a lot of these things become, a lot of these historical myths about the United States become kind of chicken or egg questions. You grow up in a culture And then you go to school and you're taught things that are meant to reinforce that culture in many ways. And even when the facts don't quite fit, you're encouraged uh, not just by school but by the society around you to basically say, okay, well, that's a a very quick aberration from uh, what's going on and accept it as just kind of part of 
life. Yeah. So what you're saying is that milkshakes are exactly as equal as uh, bombings and shootings and uh, riots. Yes. Actually, that is pretty much what I'm saying. I think there is a very... We can't advocate violence on this show for excellent federal communicative law reasons. (laughs) So I'm going to talk about this from a purely historical perspective, but... The rhetorical role of nonviolence in the United States, and this is going to come back up in a bit, is to me has always been weird because it's a country that was supposedly founded in a thing literally called the Revolutionary War. Wars involve killing people. It's a form of violence. But I think one of the great coups in American historical education has been to insist that, again, uh, violence somehow makes your point morally wrong or factually wrong, such that if you have to punch somebody to make your point, then you are no longer in the right. No matter how no matter how true your point or no matter how correct your argument might be by its own merits, the moment you have to punch somebody else to make it, then it's supposed to have lost all correctitude. Except that then you look at, I don't know, the entire way we talk about the Confederacy in this country. Those are people who definitely wanted to punch someone to make their point. They punched a lot of people and gave like diphtheria to a whole (laughs) bunch of other ones and whatnot. But they literally were willing to do violence to protect a horrifying institution. And we still talk about them like they were poor, deluded souls who just needed a quick talking to. Well, we do that with every facet of our government and culture is, you know, we, nonviolence is okay, except when you're defending freedoms in abroad. Um, Violence is not okay, except when you're defeating a union to, um, you know, keep the peace or whatever. Violence is, is never the answer unless it's defending. Yeah. Unless it is like, and Lou, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're technically a formal political scientist. Isn't <laughs> one of the definitions of the modern state that it has a monopoly on the use of violence? Isn't that supposed to be a thing? Yes. Right. So what does it mean if there are dudes with a dumb name like, I don't know, Pinkertons, <laughs> running around lynching people and killing them on behalf of private interests that are definitely aligned with what the federal government wants? Uh, my personal take on that is there a form? it is state sponsored violence. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I was kind of hoping for a diagnosis of well, that's a failed state. But, <laughs> um, it's either it's either a failed state or state sponsored violence. Um, neither of which are flattering. Who knows where the line is? <laughs> but the you know we told you last segment things are going to go more vasey than they are going to go Patterson. The history of labor in this country is a bloody one. The history of labor in this country is a violent one. And it's a violent one because of the, uh, as Lou talked about in the last segment, the way that labor relations are set up is to encourage that. Because capital is not going to concede any of these demands simply out of the goodness of their heart. I mean, when's the last time your boss just up and gave you a raise for no reason? You know, when when's the last time that we as a country have had a real conversation about what a living wage actually means? 
you know, Elizabeth Warren said something about it should be $23 or $23 an hour, like five years ago. And nobody's picked that up and run with it since it is to capital's advantage to want these relationships to be as violent and adversarial as possible because to them, they will always have the guns and the soldiers and all of the other forces of darkness arrayed on their side. But when we come back from this break, we're going to try to talk about a momentary attempt to stem those forces in the 1930s and the success that some workers had, probably directly as a result. If you're listening to this on the radio, congratulations. It's the exact middle point of the work week. If that doesn't make you feel any better, try listening to more Punching Out. All our past shows are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, y'all. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Noah. I'm here with Lou. Hey, guys. And during the last two segments, we've been discussing sort of the interminable bleakness of uh, what American labor relations were for the 19th and early 20th centuries. That has changed, obviously. Sure. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Anyway, we, we'd like to take this moment, the third segment, we always like to be positive. We'd like to talk about a sort of shining moment in American labor relations. I was listening to an episode uh, from uh, about a month back now, and some dingus named Noah was talking about a- Yeah, who's that guy? I don't know. Uh, very stupid. Anyway, <laughs> he was talking about something called the PRO Act, which Democrats are putting in, in front of Congress, or pretending to anyway, which is enshrines a number of- rights for unions that honestly they read like a wish list but in 1935 on july 5th what franklin delano roosevelt then president of these united states proceeded to sign was one of the most important laws in american labor history we're talking here about the national labor relations act and you know that it's important because there's a government agency that shares its name the national labor relations board Let's first talk about what did the National Labor Relations Act, also known as the Wagner Act, because uh, its main sponsor was Senator Wagner from New York. What did it actually do? Uh, well, it, it basically formalized and institutionalized the idea that the government can act as a third-party neutral arbitrator between labor and capital. So it could basically say, oh, yeah, that's a strike. You definitely need to, you know, chill out and give them some money or say, oh, no, that's not actually a strike and, you know, labor, you can definitely kick them in the butt or whatever to to make it a little glib. Um, but it, until that point, as we've discussed, basically all the strikes in the U.S. were not formally recognized or, or unions weren't, didn't have the power to strike. Um, so it, it gave, in certain circumstances, the labor, the opportunity, and the, the right to strike and also make other demands of their employers. So in other words, it basically allowed the collective bargaining process as we understand it today. Yeah. And I said before on this show that one of the imperfections of the NLRA, as I see it, I don't think this is the opinion of most of the collective, and maybe it shouldn't be, is that... <laughs> 
it unfortunately enshrined into law the most adversarial version possible of that process, which is weird because a lot of the stuff that it outlawed was the horrible stuff that right. we were just talking about. Like it, it basically yeah. said you can't kidnap miners and leave them in the desert. Right. Anymore. You can't kill your laborers. You, you yeah. probably shouldn't precisely retaliate them. You can't spy them. on them, which yeah. you still can't. You, but whatever. you can't hire police to go to their houses and beat them up. Yes. Um, so, so it did give labor some protection in that it wasn't federally allowed to go do those things. Well, and it created a government agency that was supposed to actually step in when these things right. happened to sort of step in kind of like the school marm, you know, the, the stern teacher and say, well, now you went too <laughs> far in trying to crush this strike. So guess what? They get to have a union now and that sort of thing. <laughs> like it, when, when we talk about the government as a neutral arbiter, we're not talking about just kind of an unbiased reporter of the facts that decides based on the individual merits of each side. We're talking about literally just kind of like a referee. Yeah. And there's some real drawbacks to that. Because there were, at the time, experiments in workplace democracy that might have ended with something closer to things like works councils or like union representatives on company boards or things like that. But as we all know, there is nothing more un-American than taking ideas from those Europeans. <laughs> I'm not making that up. That's a literal thing that has been said about pretty much every strike that has ever happened in United States history. So – it was not – it's not especially surprising that the form that would be enshrined in law of labor management relations would be specifically one where they are perpetually at odds, which they should be, but which even given the right to organize, even given the right to be in a labor organization, even given the right to collectively bargain was still from the very beginning fatally compromisable by management. It gave it, – even though it gives labor some protections and even though it outlawed most of the really terrible abuses by the side of management and the side of capital, it still allowed them so many loopholes that most of the things that employers do these days to uh, – bust union votes or prevent workers from unionizing or not recognize strikes or bust strikes or so on are still perfectly legal. Yeah. They're, they're not violations. And at worst, the National Labor Relations Board, if it happens to have pro-labor membership, which it doesn't at the moment, can look at something and say, okay, that is a violation or that is something that we don't look kindly upon. So we're actually not going to let you do that. But that's the most it can do. Yeah. Slap somebody on the wrist. But yeah, and it doesn't really have any teeth behind that either. Mm -hmm. You know, the worst it could possibly do is maybe a fine. Which kind of makes sense if you think about it, because once again, these things are always about power. And of course, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, one of the reasons that the NLRA got through is because he'd already gone to war with the Supreme Court. It was another golden era of conservatives suing every law that they didn't like out of existence. And... Frank, and, so and, many things have changed since then. Yeah. And FDR uh, did what like a president that made sense in a country that made sense would do. He basically challenged the Supreme Court's biggest sacred cow, which is apparently its numerical makeup. And they didn't fold completely, but they, again, they, they sort of John Roberts did. They allowed it to exist on kind of gossamer thin wings of jurisprudence 
and then just let the rest of the new deal go through no matter how badly business told them otherwise. And this from a rich president who had absolutely no skin in the working game and was just kind of trying to get his preferred legislation through. Like Franklin Delano Roosevelt was not a socialist in any sense of the imagination. It's just that conditions were so bad that somebody with his economic class could look at a package of legislation like the New Deal and say, this might be worth doing. Yeah, and that's to contrast him with um, Coolidge, who was the president before him, who was so anti-labor that even when Congress chose to do something as pro-labor as pay some foreign soldiers who work on the behalf of the U.S. government a little bit more money, he was like, nah, brah, we're not doing that. Yeah, and Coolidge made his name busting a police unit, which actually makes him cool. It's He's a complicated person. Anyway, that point aside, it is important to note, especially in the in light of talking about the railroad strike of 1877, that the NLRA exempts a lot of people. And among others, it exempts uh, government workers. Not that that matters anymore because Janice happened. Railroad workers, airline workers, and agricultural workers. Yeah. Which is one reason why the exploitation of agricultural labor is still a gigantic trade in this country. Right. Not that it isn't in every other country, but it, you know, again, this is supposed to be the land of the free. Right. And yet here we are talking about this. Yeah. So these are industries that are supposed to be vital to the functioning of the U.S. empire. Um, you know, you've got to feed people, the government's got to function, you got to get people, you got to get your military and other personnel around. Ergo, so these those are, people shouldn't have rights. Right. So the thing is, we've made the point before on this show that when somebody tells you that a rising tide lifts all boats, and what they're saying is that if you put more money in the pockets of the wealthy, everyone else will have access to that money in some degraded second-rate form, they're lying to you. Right. But one, See, a rising tide lifts all boats, but not everybody's in a flipping boat. Number one. And number two, some people are in, like, yachts, and some people are in dinghies. Right. Or, like, just on a rock in the middle of the ocean. Yes. Like, just this metaphor... for dear life to a buoy. <laughs> this metaphor that's been used for, for capitalism and the spread of capitalism is so deeply flawed that I just want to throw Well, it's things. because it was made by rich people who own boats. Anyway... One way in which it definitely is true, and I can verify this from extremely personal experience, is that when you give some workers power, when you allow some workers to bargain and struggle and organize, it does help other workers. It does help people in other sectors, other industries, other organizations, whatever, to gain the opportunity to do so themselves. And that's why even though... They were explicitly cut out of the National Labor Relations Act in what should be considered a huge crime, but again, things have not changed. FDR needed Southern Democrats to be able to pass the New Deal, so he exempted a huge portion of where they were still getting their money. It was on July 29, 1970, that the United Farm Workers ended a five-year grape boycott and strike after grape growers, which, okay, hold up, second tangent. Why are the owners of the farms called the grape growers? They're not out there doing a damn thing. Because there's a great mythos of the working man in the U.S. Oh, see, I thought it was like a job creator thing. Like he just... No. 
you know, when he goes no, out it's there like, in his suit. And it's like your, your whatever that politi- politician was who said, oh, yeah, I'm an uh, exterminator, when he just owned, like, an exterminator. That's Chuck Schumer talking about his dad. Oh, there you go, that guy. Yeah. So, yeah, he's not the son of an exterminator. He's the son of a guy who owned an exterminator company. Yeah. Yeah, it's that mythos of, of oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a real working man. I get my hands dirty, never mind that I live in a plantation house and have hundreds of migrant workers whom I'm starving and poisoning. Yes, yeah, the the rise of the family farm that's actually owned by a giant corporation. Yeah, but it is owned by a family. It, yeah, a very <laughs> rich just, family. Yeah, it's just not worked by them. Yeah, and none of them have seen the farm in decades. <laughs> it's also important to note in the context of the United Farm Workers, specifically something that we haven't really talked about. Not only were agricultural workers exempt from the National Labor Relations Act, but there was also this thing called the Bracero Program. Uh, which is where it was a guest worker program, which, of course, was used by the American capital class to undercut the wages of domestic workers and strike break. And the program was extended until 1964, which is well within range of the United Farm Workers beginning to organize. It's very important to note, one more time, what they were doing was still illegal. The Wobblies, there they are again, had attempted to organize farm workers in the 1910s, And if you have not figured out how this is going to end, let me spoil it for you. The army went in and shot people. And here we are again in the 1950s and 60s. And this time around, farm worker organization is growing out of what is called the community service organization, which was originally a kind of services and relief organization for Mexican-Americans in cities in California. Uh, This would be where organizers like Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta got their start. They would eventually create the National Farm Workers Association, and that would unite with the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee, which was mostly made up of Filipino migrant workers, to form the United Farm Workers. The Filipino sector of the UFW would end up spearheading the grape strike that ended up lasting for like five years and was a huge mobilization of labor. Uh, Not only did they strike in the actual fields, but they actually got consumers to boycott grapes. Uh, There's a famous story about like one of the heirs to the A&P fortune saying that he would no longer buy his own store's grapes. That was a big deal. They forged links with feminist and civil rights movements. And here it is again, Cesar Chavez especially emphasized the role of nonviolence through tactics like hunger strikes. This was the ideal of a moral, of a morally correct strike. There was no violence by the union. Uh, there was no sort of icky uh, miners demanding better working conditions or anything. It was, it was a strike that, especially white liberals in the 1960s found that they could be proud to support. And yet, if you've seen film of how this stuff went down, you still get to see the same things that happen in every other one of these incidents. You still get to see cops beating the crap out of people on the ground. You still get to see people run over by police cars. So it doesn't matter what the moral rectitude of your labor action is. Capital has one response to it, and it's still violence. I mean, the good news is that this was a a successful strike. It was a successful, it was illegal, which just goes to show, as we've said on other episodes, you can't 
rely on the courts or the legal system to protect your rights, they don't have your interest at heart. Um, but it was successful, and it was a, a great example of labor mobilization, which is one of the reasons why Cesar Chavez is one of the few labor leaders that you would possibly hear about in American history classes. Uh, he might be like briefly mentioned, um, you know, as a, a like this guy was a farmer in California. Yep. Like he, he led farmers in California. That's maybe all you'll hear about, um, but his name is at least mentioned. I think that his actually getting mentioned makes a weird amount of sense, both because he was explicitly trying to position himself as like the more labor focused equivalent to somebody like Martin Luther King Jr., but also because then he, American historians and, and the people who want you not to actually stand up and fight for your rights in ways that they might consider icky can contrast to, you know, people like the Wobblies and people like the union organizers who understood how much violence was going to be coming their way and understood that, unfortunately, they weren't always going to be able to capture the moral high ground that the capital class was trying to force them into. Well, we hope that over the past hour, we've given you something of a look in how the month during which we celebrate Independence Day is actually a blood streak 30 days full of terror and violence and exploitation, but also the home of a few notable successes in American labor history. <laughs> so for today, I'm Noah. And I'm Lou. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.